0: I'm Dr. Michael Gorin. I'm a um, medical retina and ophthalmic genetics uh, specialist at the Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA. Um, And I'm very grateful for the opportunity and the privilege, actually, of speaking to you all today. Um, I will apologize in advance that my slides are not very visual. And I do that intentionally because when I am given this privilege to speak uh, to people in the public about macular degeneration or other hereditary retinal diseases, uh, I usually have people in the audience who do not have, let's say, very good sight. And so I don't ever want them to feel that they're going to miss something uh, by having slides that would require them to uh, see real clearly. So uh, really this is an audio talk more than anything else, and the slides are sort of a, a bit of reference. Uh, there will be time for questions uh, for me right after my talk, but we'll, we'll keep that very short so that Dr. Clausen can do his presentation, and then we'll have additional questions at the end. Um, so, what do you need to know about macular degeneration? Well, you've already had a lecture about what is age-related macular degeneration. Of course, one question that comes up, and I should say at the beginning that my goal here is is not to all make you scientists, nor to presume that you know all about science, but to really put it in a perspective for you, to really answer the key questions that you have, which is, what's going to happen? What's being done to help me or my family with this condition? So. You've already had some discussion about age-related macular degeneration. Is it one disease or many? Well, this has been actually a subject of tremendous debate. Um, People had thought for a long time that because of the changes in the eye, maybe this represented multiple different pathways of disease culminating in a similar-looking process. We now know from the genetic studies that to a large extent, while it, the genetics is complex, it's pointing to the fact that in, there, is, there are common mechanisms that unite all the different forms of AMD at this time. Now, you heard me actually uh, at the end of the last speaker talk about associations and what do we really mean when we talk about associations, risk factors, and causes. We have to be very clear about this. Um, this leads to a lot of confusion for people. As I said before... When we do population-based studies and we're doing comparisons of one group to another, we often find that there are differences. Um, and so if you find that a group, for example, are older, uh, that may be a factor as to why they have more of the disease. Or as I we talked about smoking and diet, uh, the, lots of the evidence to, that's based on the benefits of lutein, for example, have really been based on epidemiologic studies. Only now is a c- controlled clinical study going on to really ask the question, if I give you lutein, will it change your risk? You have to understand that the studies to date have not really established an answer to that, and it's an important question. All they have shown, and it's pretty compelling, that those who have a higher intake of lutein and zeaxanthin, those macular carotenoids are referred to, have a lower, have an association with a lower prevalence of AMD. In terms of risk factors, these, when we mean this, we mean if you modify that factor or you know that you have that factor versus another, it alters your risk. So the first is just a connection. The second says that there's an associate, that there's a, there's a risk involved in it. For example, smoking is pretty conclusively agreed upon now as to be a risk factor for macular degeneration it increases the risk about two-and-a-half-fold. As we'll talk about, there are genetic variants that also increase your risk. And we believe that these are not simply associations anymore, but now we have the scientific evidence to make a compelling argument that these variations in some way are affecting a pathway that's critical to the cause of macular degeneration. However... The variation itself may not be causal; it may be again an association. So, we still have a bit of a ways to go. But again, when we talk about risk factors, um, it, it doesn't always mean that it causes the disease. And finally, when we talk about cause, we're really at the bottom of the of the system. This is what truly triggers it. And we're getting there with macular degeneration. I can tell you, I've been doing macular degeneration research now for close to 30 years. And the, cha- the, the advances in the last five years are unbelievable. Absolutely explosive. Um, and I'm proud to say that a lot of that has to do with the work that was done in genetics. Though a lot of biology studies and cellular studies and studies of the patients and tissues with macular degeneration have added to it all, we couldn't make that connection until we had the genetics. So The genetic studies that I'm referring to in this slide, both family and case-controlled, we started out looking at families, people who had other family members with macular degeneration who had macular degeneration themselves. And because it's a late onset condition, we looked at basically brothers and sisters because the parents are usually gone. I mean, when a person's 65, very often their parents are not still alive. When we did those studies, well, that, that took us a good 20 years. 17 years, actually, we found that there were areas of the genetic information in people's cells that was associated, I couldn't say it was causal, associated with macular degeneration. Now, subsequently, studying those areas very intensively by newer methods and also adding in looking at people who had no family history of macular degeneration versus those who had no disease at all, we, in fact, have found a set several different genes in those regions that cause, or we feel now are causal and do strongly contribute to risk. Um, I'm often asked, well, is the cause of macular degeneration different in someone who has a family history versus somebody who walks in and who doesn't? It's a good question. The answer is probably not. Because there are so many different genes and variants that contribute to risk, what we have found so far is that those with a family history are pretty much have the same risk factors as those who don't have a family history. It's just the combination that occurs, and of course, smoking and other risk factors. So, so far, we haven't found that families are worse more worse off in a sense than those who are not. Um, okay. Just to give you an idea, this graph just, I I do this to show you when I tell you that there's been an explosion in five years. You can see that I started collecting families, God, it was a long time ago, uh, about 1990. Mm, I'm getting on. And uh, you can see that the first, on this slide, it shows the first linkage study was done, uh, was published by us in about 2000. And you can see that there were a few papers. This is just looking at numbers of publications on genetics, and you can see by two thousand and seven that the number had gone it 's gone exponentially, and, and by the way, now it 's up into the thousands. Um, each year, more and more groups are, are studying the genetics and in a sense, that has become a, a, a strong foundation for the research that 's going on, but it 's not the end point. Um, what, all the genetics can do, it, it allows us to look at variations in genes that affect your people's risk for having disease. It remains to the basic scientists to take those discoveries and translate that into understanding the biology so that we can come up with new medications, which you heard about a little bit in the previous talk, or come up with other strategies to reduce the disease. So... One of the questions, of course, is, and and I'm trying to get at this. People say to me, well, what is the goal of all this research? Well, our goals are pretty simple. We want to prevent the disease. We want to halt its progression. And we want to restore sight for those who've lost it. Right? Pretty much, I think we're all in agreement. That's where we want to go. So what about prevention? What are the issues that we have to deal with? Well, for one, are we talking about preventive therapies for everybody? I mean, should we all be wearing blue blockers? Should we all be taking extra lutein and zeaxanthine? Of course, I think we would agree that all of us shouldn't smoke, but that's for other reasons as well. If I came up with a pill that lowered your risk, I guess it would depend on how safe the pill was and how much it cost, depending on who would want to take it. If you had a very low risk of the disease, we could bankrupt you, perhaps, if you were taking it for a whole lifetime. So one of the questions we have that is a little bit outside of the research area, but one that we always have to think about is, to what extent should the cost and risk of a preventive therapy affect the decision as to who should be treated? And we're going to get back to this topic again, because one of the things that's coming out now, and it's available to you today, is to be tested for your genetic risk for macular degeneration. And what I want to point out to you is that maybe we're not there yet for that testing to be done. So in terms of identifying those who are at risk for genetic um, disease, we have to consider, or for macular degeneration, we have to consider genetic testing. We have to consider that environmental exposure to smoking and behaviors, like exercise and things, and try to establish which ones are associations and which ones are truly risk factors. So first of all, how good are the current genetic methods? We've now identified roughly eight genes and variants in those genes that contribute substantially to the risk of macular degeneration. How much is that variation in risk? About 300 to 500-fold between those who have very low risk and those who have very high risk. If you look at those people who have the lowest risk genetically for macular degeneration, almost none of them get macular degeneration. Great for them. Cool. And those with the highest risk factors... Uh, Over 90% of them, maybe even higher, get macular degeneration. Tough luck. But the problem is most of us are in the middle. Most of us have some risk factors, some genetic risk factors, and others that may even be protective. So for those of us in the middle, the genetic testing is not going to be very good at deciding whether you're really going to get macular degeneration or not. Okay? Okay. This is just shows from some of the early work, just to show you the range. And what I'm trying to point out here is those with the lowest risk are way down here, and those with the highest risk are way up here. But the population is all sitting in here. Very, very few people at both ends of the spectrum. In fact, we spend a lot of our time trying to find people at the extremes, those who have very low risk who still get macular degeneration, and those who have very high risk who do not and there 's so few in both groups that it 's very, very difficult so this was a paper that just came out about two months ago in the Proceedings of the national academy and just to, to show you the combined where they combined all of the major risks, um, this is their their model for doing this and, and By the way, I need to point out there are different models for calculating how these different genetic risk factors contribute to your overall risk. So, for example, if you buy, and you can, as I said, you can do this now, if you want to go and purchase a genetic test of your blood to look at what your risk is for AMD, and you went to three different companies, even if they tested the same variations in your genes and got the same answers, they'll give you different risks. They'll tell you a different answer because they use different models. So... As much as I like you know, the genetics and the modeling, um, we have to recognize that there are real limitations. Now this is a little bit technical here, but what it, it's trying to get at the point is that when we do genetic research and we find a strong association of a variant with a gene, and the one that's most known is complement factor H, by the way if you haven't heard of that one um, It has a huge impact on your risk for the disease. But as a clinical test, you have to know, how often am I going to falsely identify somebody as going to get the disease, and how often am I going to miss somebody who's going to get the disease because of my test? And these are just ways of doing it. And what we've done, this is from one of my papers, where what we've done is we've actually looked at the real genetic data that's out there and asked, how good is it going to be if we were to do it as a clinical test? And what we found is that Well, the bottom line is it's not very good. How so? Well, to correctly identify three-fourths of the cases. So if I had a bunch of people coming in and I said, okay, I'm going to test them all. I'm going to have a 1,000 people. I'm going to test them. In order to identify three-fourths of those who will ultimately get macular degeneration, I'm going to wrongly classify 31% of the people who will never get macular degeneration Okay? That's pretty high because most people don't develop macular degeneration, even at the advanced stage. I mean, at the worst times of your life when you're in your 80s, it's about 25 to maybe 30% to have macular degeneration. So what that means is, just to to summarize very quickly, if we did this, we would only be able to predict about 12% of the people correctly. That's not a good test. Okay? Okay? So in other words, I give this test out, and I would only be correct 12% of the time. Now, if I'm doing a clinical study like you heard about before where, you know, we want people who are at risk for macular degeneration, we can basically double the risk of the group so we can more quickly and use less people get to an answer. But for a person, I don't think it's right to alarm 88% of the people that they're going to have macular degeneration. Now, some of my colleagues in, in ophthalmology say, well, but I want to really convince my patients to stop smoking and to take lutein and to take vitamins. Um, as a geneticist, I have to tell you, I do not believe in genetic coercion, okay? Um, so I think that, um, you know, this is not what we should be doing at this time. As you see, I've I've even just reiterated this. The other thing that we have to understand as we've been doing this, can any preventive measures reduce our degree of risk? Well, that's an important question. Okay, if I have increased genetic risk factors, well, am I just screwed? Is there nothing that can be done? Well, again, we don't have great studies on this yet, but there is one epidemiologic study that suggests that if you take people who are at higher risk and you have them do the the preventive therapies that we talk about, not smoke, take lutein, zeaxanthin, take the ARED supplements, that they do reduce their risk. They don't reduce it to zero, but they can get it almost down to the population-based risk. So they can get down to about the same risk as anybody else. So the point is, is that you're never probably going to have prevention measures that are going to eliminate the risk completely because those people at the real top of the, of the ladder, nothing ain't going to help them. And at the people at the bottom, obviously, they don't need it. But for those of us in the middle, we may be able to get a little bit of movement in terms of our risk. Why do I say this? Well, because, again, it's this guilt issue. If you're, you know, there's this thing like, well, if you don't do the right thing, you know, that's why you got macular degeneration. No, you could do the right thing for your entire life and some people will still get it, okay? It doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing, but you shouldn't necessarily make somebody feel guilty that because they didn't do it, that's why they got the disease. Um, Now, uh, the last point I want to make is prevention therapy the same as treatment approach to halt progression. We believe now that macular degeneration, as I said, is a complex condition. There are multiple factors involved. So prevention is really a matter of trying to reduce risk but you're not gonna ever totally prevent it. Treatment approach to halt progression is to deal with those who already have the disease. You're sure they have it and you want to not have it progress or get worse. And in many respects, that's a little bit different. Now, you already heard about the current treatments with anti-VEGF drugs, Avastin and Lucentis. Um, It does not really stop the progression of the underlying disease. In other words, when we give Lucentis and it's working, All it does is it stops that abnormal blood vessel, that choroidal neovascular membrane you heard about, from growing. It doesn't stop the process that caused it to grow in the first place. So it it really isn't even halting or slowing the progression. The underlying macular degeneration is still occurring. That's perhaps why nutrient supplements, such as the ARED supplements, in fact, have been shown to reduce the rate of progression by about 20%. They're working more on that underlying factor. But again, it's not a cure. The newest approaches are looking at modulating the inflammatory response, and that's because of the genes that we have found involved in macular degeneration, a whole bunch of them are part of the same pathway. This pathway has a name. It's called the alternate complement pathway. That's not so important to you. What's important to know is what that pathway does. That pathway is your guardian. That pathway is a way that your body has of attacking foreign elements that are introduced into the body to prevent infection. Unfortunately, in some people, it's not properly regulated and it can actually be overactive and attack your own body, and those are people who have autoimmune conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and others. But we have now found that it is this inflammatory response that when you alter its regulation seems to affect the risk of getting macular degeneration. Now, you're going to say to me, well, why in the eye? I mean, if it's the body, why the eye? Well, part of it is is that part of the regulation of that complement pathway occurs locally in the eye by the cells under the retina. And part of it has to do with the fact that there's probably a trigger, which is why the previous speaker spoke to you about avoiding blue light, for example. We think that may be activating some molecules to become toxic. It's not proven yet, but there's some pretty good evidence in animal models and in the laboratory that high levels of vitamin A, when they get derivatized, when that molecule is modified and then hit with blue light, can activate this pathway and trigger an inflam- this inflammatory response that leads to the degeneration in the eye. So these pathways are essential to protect us. But unfortunately, and it's so we have a critical issue. How do we regulate it without endangering the person either way? Um, And by the way, there's some evidence to suggest that it's not all occurring from risk factors in the eye. Uh, A good colleague of mine has shown that or has begun to get data to show that when patients, for example, receive a liver transplant from somebody whose liver has the high genetic risk factors for macular degeneration, it accelerates their development of macular degeneration. And if they get a liver that has the low risk factors, it can actually be somewhat protective. So we know that the whole process isn't just going on in the eye. There are factors going on throughout the body as well. Obviously, I've talked a little bit already about prevention, who do we give prevention therapy to and what that, what that might be? The same question comes up, at what stage in life should one begin such therapies? Do you do it at the first clinical sign of disease when someone says they have a few little drusen? Or do you do it when they've already got lots of drusen and they're already having some vision changes? I guess that's going to have to depend a little bit on the safety and cost again. Focusing on local control of the inflammatory pathway... Um, This is something that people are talking in terms of gene therapy. Most people think of gene therapy as fixing a broken gene. That is a valid form of gene therapy. But another form of gene therapy is to introduce the production of a molecule that in some way protects the individual or lessens their progression of disease. And certainly there are people working now on gene therapy methods where they modify not the retina, but the cells under the retina to enhance their ability to suppress that inflammation activation and to protect them. Certainly one thing is that we want to focus more on the trigger of that inflammatory process, and that still is not known. There may be several different ones still, but this is the area right now of the most intense basic research. This is what's going on as we speak. Well, it's Saturday, and I bet some people are working. If you were going to try to treat it, you would require sustained delivery of a drug or protein molecule. That's why gene therapy would be so nice. If you can modify the cells to produce it on an ongoing basis, you don't have to keep giving a person shots or drops or pills. Um, But realize that, again, this has both a systemic, a body-wide component as well as an eye component. And of course, one thing that we have to consider, you heard a little bit about things being injected into the eye, little capsulated devices, whether we should be injecting things under your retina. Um, this is also gonna be de- dependent on also the risk in do- of doing those I- interventions, because some people will have complications. Now the other area of research, again, is, which is f- the focus of many people's interest, is restorative treatment. So we've talked about prevention, We talked about halting progression, and now we're talking about restoration. So what's the goal of restoration? Well, it's to restore usable sight to those who've lost it from macular degeneration. Now, either we have to replace, in macular degeneration, as well as many other retinal diseases, you lose sight because cells die. That seems obvious. But actually, for example, there are some rare cases where you may have read, did any of you hear about the gene therapy that was successful in Pennsylvania and in England? Yeah, LCA, labors congenital amaurosis, for one particular type of labors congenital amaurosis. That, that, that was a brilliant case of gene therapy where they introduced the gene that was defective in those individuals, and they could see. That sounds restorative, and it is. But what makes it unique is that the particular genetic defect in those children and adults for that particular condition causes the cells in the retina to be blind before they die. So if you do gene therapy for them, you can restore the sight of the cells that are still alive. If you wait a long time, you don't get complete restoration of vision because they've lost cells, and we don't have the ability to raise cells from the dead yet. Um, so, how do we, what, are we, how are we going to restore vision if cells are dying? In macular degeneration, the cells die. Why do people get better after injections for wet macular degeneration? Because as you suppress that vessel and the retina flattens back down and it restores its function, those cells haven't died and the person's able to restore their sight. If it's gone on too long and the cells in the retina have started to die, well, The injections may be successful. Your retina may look great, but you won't see so well. So the approaches, and Dr. Klaassen is going to talk about stem cell work, but there are several approaches. Stem cells, introducing cells that can divide and change themselves to rebuild the tissue. Cell transplantation, this is where they actually grow the tissue and transplant it in. They've tried that. And actually there are several groups that are trying to convert The surviving cells, you know, your retina doesn't completely die when you have macular degeneration or these retinal diseases, only certain populations of cells. What if we could take the cells that are still alive in your retina and convert them so they can see? And there are people working on this. There are ways that we can introduce genes that add a critical protein into a cell that makes it respond to light. So research is going on in that area. And I think many of you have heard about bioelectronic devices. These are the artificial retinas and this sort of thing. The challenge with these artificial, uh, these electronic retinas is that they have the difficulty of, as you try to get higher and higher resolution, that is, as you want to have more electrodes, you have to focus in on things. It gets harder and harder to not have it kill the cells. Let me wrap. I'll do that. So... Um, I just want to point out that with stem cell and cell transplantation, I want you to appreciate the fact that it's much more like uh, a reconstruction project rather than new building, okay? You have the situation where you have to remove the damage and and get the cells reoriented again, not simply replace the cells that are there. We have a long way to go in this. It is an incredibly exciting time. Uh, We have made enormous advances in just a few years, When you read in the New York Times that the genome project has not yielded much in results yet, um, let me just tell you that in the field of macular degeneration, we are not only the head of the curve; we are leading the way with the rest of the world in research for diseases in general in terms of exploiting the benefits of that program. So, with that, I'll conclude. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. well, first of all, I'm going to take put on a different hat here, and say there's always something we can do for someone with macular degeneration. Okay, it does It may not be restoring their sight, but there are certain things we can always do to improve their quality of life and give them greater independence. And so, first and foremost, let's not lose sight of that. Secondly, um, the biggest barrier for people to function with macular degeneration is depression not just their vision loss. So if you have a person who's really in despair because they can't see, we need to treat the despair. Uh, but finally, can you the way so you can get his... finally, that's great. Finally, um, in terms of treatments right now, the anti-VEGF therapies, the and Lucentis, are by far the best bet. There are people trying combination therapies that were mentioned before to try to reduce the number of injections, but none of them are really stopping the underlying disease. So... Uh, th- The the answer to your question is, in one sense, no, and in another sense, yes. Well, you know, I'll I'll be very brief. But basically, we used to think drusen were just garbage collecting in the back of the eye. We now know that those are the areas where you're getting activation of this inflammatory pathway. So all of this research on controlling the inflammatory pathway is really directed exactly to what you're talking about, preventing the buildup of that material and those deposits. So, yes, we are doing that. And we're doing it at the basic biological level, but that's exactly what we're trying to do. Thank you so much, Dr. and He'll be around for some questions later. Our next speaker is Dr. Henry Klassen. Dr. Klassen is one of our researchers here at UCI in the uh, Discovery Eye Foundation laboratories. And he's done some fascinating things. I think you're gonna like some of his illustrations too. And he has been working collaboratively with universities around the world on macular degeneration and stem cell and uh, retinal regeneration. So he has a lot to tell you that I think you'll enjoy hearing.
1: All right, it's good to be here. Um, We're gonna shift gears a little bit. So you heard quite a bit about the underlying basis of macular degeneration, particularly the genetics underlying it. Now comes the um, part where we try to do something about it. Now, I'll just give you a disclaimer. I'm not gonna claim that stem cells can cure macular degeneration now, and maybe not ever, but I think they have a role to play in the therapy Not so much necessarily a cure, but in the therapeutic treatment of of AMD, and we definitely need a lot more treatments for AMD. Um, I'm also going to give you a little bit of background on stem cells and what they are and what they do and and the different types of stem cells. It's going to be a little bit of a superficial view, but hopefully it gives you a little bit of perspective on this rather complicated topic. Now, um, just to back up a little bit about what I do, I'm trying to repair the retina. That's a daunting task. Um, And there's really two different approaches we're using. One's a little bit easier than the other, and Dr. Gorin referred to both of these. One is advanced drug delivery. So if we can deliver drugs like protein growth factors to the back of the eye in a sustained manner, then maybe we have a treatment um, that could help conditions of the retina before the degeneration really gets going. Um, One possibility is that stem cells could even enter into this type of treatment by being a drug delivery device. In other words, cells are the best way of making a protein. And if your drug is a protein, then a stem cell might be a great way to deliver that protein to the retina. Um, The other possibility is that we can actually replace cells in the retina. Now, As Dr. Gorin says, that doesn't mean making a brand new retina from scratch in the back of your eye it's more about replacing cells that have died. I'm going to show you some scientific evidence that um, perhaps this isn't such a, a, a far reaching idea anymore, although it, you know, just a few decades ago that sounded outright insane. Um, so, in terms of how we would replace a cell, one way is to use a stem cell, and I'll show you why that's an attractive uh, approach. Another is tissue engineering, which might have more application in macular degeneration. The reason is because multiple cell types and multiple tissue layers can be um, affected by that particular condition, we need to replace these um, layer by layer in the most severe cases. Um, And perhaps using a combination of stem cells on polymer scaffolds and layers of mature cell types like the pigment cells, perhaps we can slowly build up uh, through the research layer by layer the missing parts of the retina. Again, that's a bit futuristic, but there's reasons to think that might have a, a role to play in the future. Now, what is a stem cell? You know, we should back up a moment because um, it's good to have a little bit of a handle on why, what is a stem cell and why it's important. So there's two really fundamental properties of a stem cell. One is called self-renewal, and that means the stem cell has to be make more of itself. It has to regenerate more stem cells. And the reason is, if the stem cell can't make more stem cells, who's going to do it? And then you're going to run out of stem cells. So a stem cell, first of all, has to make more of itself. Um, And then it has to generate a mature cell type. That means it has to regenerate something of interest, something of use to your body. You can't walk with stem cells. You can't talk with stem cells. You need the actual mature tissues that perform these functions. And so the stem cell's role is to make those tissues, to make the cell types that make up those tissues. It's a complicated process, but that's what they can do. So they make more of themselves, and they make whatever else you need so that 's what makes a stem cell. Um, there are different types of stem cells there's something what we might call a true stem cell, and then there's something we can call an adult stem cell. The reason we call a true stem cell a stem cell is it really fundamentally obeys the the rules that are laid down for what constitutes a stem cell and that 's why we talk about these embryonic stem cells, and these are the ones that generated some controversy. Uh, under the last administration because they came from embryos. The fact is that an embryonic cell can make any cell of the body, well, that makes it a true stem cell because it really doesn't have a lot of limitations. It can make more of itself and it can make more of just about anything. So it's really a stem cell and it can continue to do that indefinitely. That's what constitutes a true stem cell. An adult stem cell is much more focused. Um, And an adult stem cell can make a particular tissue type. So for instance, as we are here now, we have stem cells of the adult type still in our body. We have skin stem cells that can regenerate our skin. We have stem cells in our intestines to uh, redevelop the lining of our intestines because that's constantly being lost and it has to be replaced. You know your blood cells only last um, weeks to months, so you have to replace those, regenerate them all the time, constantly. So you have stem cells in your bone marrow that are constantly resupplying you with blood. Um, So those are adult stem cells. They can't necessarily make everything, unless, of course, the scientist gets involved and starts uh, messing with their genetics, then that's a whole different story. Um, but um, normally speaking, these stem cells are very focused on what they do. So that's why you can t- come away from this, knowing that an adult stem cell is very focused, and an embryonic stem cell has the world before it. So it's, it's kind of a recapitulation of human development, if you will. Um, so here's just an image of what I've been talking about. You start with um, cells at the beginning of life when you have an embryo that's just a ball of cells. And then as this ball of cells turns into a a fetus, and you start to get specific tissue types. Remember back here, all the cells in this inner cell mass are basically the same cell. And if you take them out into a dish, you have an embryonic stem cell. This early embryo is basically a ball of stem cells. That's what it is. Um, And then when it becomes... a developing fetus, it's not a ball of stem cells anymore, it's a ball of more mature progenitor cells that are generating the different cell types and these are examples of different cell types. And here's what an embryonic stem cell colony looks like in a dish and here's a retinal progenitor cell type, the type of cell we work with for the retina growing in a dish and you can see they're similar but they're also different. So. If an embryonic stem cell can do anything, why would anybody focus on an adult stem cell in the a laboratory? One is that there's proven clinical efficacy for these if you use them in the right way. For instance, bone marrow stem cells are being used right now, so there is a stem cell type that's in active use at the moment. Um, there's also um, less we have to do. When you're working with an embryonic stem cell, it has so many potentials It could do so many things. You have to school and direct the cell into the direction you want it to go, or else it'll become a misbehaved youth, if you will, a juvenile delinquent. You gotta keep an eye on these things. Whereas the adult stem cell is better behaved and is more likely to do what you want it to do because it's already moving in that direction. It already has a whole lifetime of education behind it. So it's easier to work with from a scientific standpoint. And that also makes it simpler and safer from a logistical standpoint. Now in terms of stem cells in the eye, there's again a whole variety of different stem cells that you might hear about related to the eye. For instance, there's a corneal limbal type of stem cell. that We all have that cell and it's right around the outside of the um, central part of the eye. It's on the edge of the white of your eye. Um, And these cells repopulate a thin layer of cells on the front of your eye, the clear corneal epithelium. It's just the top layer over the front clear part. So every time that gets scraped off, and if you've ever had that happen, you know it's very painful, but within a day or two, it grows back. Well, it wouldn't grow back unless you had these stem cells around there that are they are like a skin stem cell, but they specifically make the clear layer over the front of the eye. These stem cells are also in clinical use right now. There was a very recent paper out of Italy showing that these are effective in a majority of patients selected for use with these particular limbal type of stem cell. Now, these cells, remember, they're an adult stem cell type. They can't necessarily do everything. You're not necessarily going to replace your bone marrow with these cells, fix your brain, fix your heart, you know, They're just there for the front of the cornea, but for that, they're very good, very safe, and they're already useful. Um, We talked about embryonic cells. People are working with these in the laboratory, but this isn't something that's ready for prime time. Uh, Neural stem cells are a type of cell that's already specified to become neural tissue. Our retinal progenitor cells are a subset of this type of cell. these are still in development, but they're probably moving along a little quicker than the embryonic because, again, they're more specified, there's less to worry about, um, and it's easier to get approval, and it's more likely they're going to do what you want them to do. The mesenchymal stem cell is, is like a subset of your bone marrow stem cell. They're, they're interesting cells as well, and some people are using those in the eye. Um, And like I said, our retinal progenitor is really a type of neural stem cell, but it's specific to the retina. It doesn't make brain all of the brain tissue, but it does make the retina. Um, So that's the cell we're focused on. Um, This is an image of some of these cells growing in the dish. Um, They're not normally fluorescent, but we've tagged them with some antibodies so we can analyze what proteins they're making, and that makes for some uh, rather spectacular pictures. Um, These cells, again, are obtained from the developing retina. They're not obtained from the embryo, and they're not obtained from an adult. They're in between. Uh, The retina has to still be developing. Um, And then these cells can be grown in a dish and then transplanted. And they they have some rather interesting behaviors once you transplant them. They can migrate through the retinal tissue without disrupting it. Uh, They can integrate into the... the the architecture of the retina, and apparently into the circuitry of the retina. Um, And they can differentiate into retinal cell types. I'm going to show you some of this data. Now, when you put a stem cell into the retina or anywhere else, if you want to find out what it's doing, you need to be able to track that cell. That's not an easy task because, remember, these cells are like shape-shifters. They can generate all kinds of mature cell types. So if they're doing their job properly, they melt right into the surroundings, and you'd never find them again. Um, so what the trick that scientists use nowadays is a fluorescent tag so that you can find this bright, glowing stem cell in the tissue after you transplant it, and it's a great tool. Um, one way to get these cells um, is to find it, not find, but develop an animal that has a fluorescent jellyfish gene that's expressed throughout his body. And then the cells have this bright colored tag, um, and then you can transplant them. So for instance, we can take stem cells from these green mice, this green pig or this red cat, and then we can find them after we transplant them. And I'll show you some of that. So here are cells from the retina of green mice. You start with a broken up, developing retina. You see these are little pups, and then we break up the retina, and then we add growth factors to these cells, and those growth factors drive the stem cells into their proliferation mode. So they're growing and growing and making more of themselves, which is, remember, one of the qualification of being a stem-like cell. And so as they're growing, they're making these little clusters. These aren't just one cell, but these are clusters of cells. As we continue to add the growth factors, they continue to grow. And we can do genetic analysis on these cells. And what we find is they express a lot of the genes that are known to be important in retinal development. In other words, these are the cells that are making the retina in the first place. And then after transplantation, and these are studies in animals, just so you know, we're transplanting green fluorescent retinal progenitor cells or neural progenitors to the retina in animals. We can find the cells because they they glow bright green in this case. Um, The surrounding retina is here, but you don't see it because it wasn't labeled with the tag. So uh, the green fluorescence allows us to examine what the stem cells are doing after transplantation And we can see bipolar-like cells in the retina. We can see a photoreceptor-like cell. Here's a cluster of photoreceptor cells. And we can look even more closely, and we can see that they're making synapses in the uh, right part of the retina, which would suggest that these photoreceptors are not only aligned in the right part of the retina, but they're making the connections. What good would a photoreceptor be if it's not talking to the rest of your visual system? So, um, so far, so good. Um, we've also done some experiments along with our colleagues, uh, Mike Young and Peter Coffey, looking at uh, whether these cells have a benefit in terms of vision. This is a little bit of a complicated story, but how do you test vision in a mouse? You can't take it up to the eye chart and say... Uh, well, why do you see? Do you see the big E there? No. Um, so everybody knows that rodents like to run around on a running wheel in the dark. So this is a way we can test them to see whether they're sensitive to light more or less, and we can quantify that. Um, so what we're going to do is have three groups of animals running in the dark. Uh, one of them is... In green is, uh, the, what we're gonna call our normal baseline. In fact, it's green mice, but it turns out they can see pretty well. So that's gonna be our evidence of seeing. Uh, the, the, the black indicates animals that have a blinding condition. So there's, those are our blind mice. And then the blue is the, um, retinal progenitor cell transplant. So to back up a moment, we got these animals in the dark, all three of them are running. So the bar high bars just are the counts as the wheels going around in the dark. So they're all running in the dark, which means they're happy and they're behaving in a normal manner. So then what we do, you remember, if you ever had a hamster when you were a kid, you hear it running and running and that squeaking wheel's driving you crazy all night. So you go in there and you flip on the light. Then the animal just stops immediately. Then you turn off the light, go back to bed, it starts up again. That's the basis of our test. So if the animal sees the light, it stops running. So, for instance, this blind mouse at different light levels continues to run. That means it's not seeing the light very well. Look at the green animal, that's our normal one. It stops running, it sees the light very well at different light levels. Um, our transplant is somewhere in between, but it does show a statistically significant improvement uh, over the blind animal. So something about the transplantation procedure is actually improving their ability to detect the light, it means they're seeing better to the extent we can say that about a mouse. Um, And I should say that these blind animals weren't just blind, they were given a sham control, so that helps us understand something about the procedure. It wasn't just the fact that we stuck a a needle in the back of the eye that did this. It was something about the cells. Um, And here's a little side trip. If you're gonna transplant a cell or anything to the body, you need to consider the immunology. Um, you just heard about the, the role that immunology can play. Um, immunology is our friend. It it helps protect us against dreaded diseases. It's not perfect. Some There are some diseases our immune system won't protect us against. And once in a while, our immune system goes renegade and starts attacking us. Um, and one of those situations is when you get a transplant. The whole story about blood transfusions, you got to realize that's an actual transplant. And for a lot of times, people knew that people bled to death. That's something that's been going on since prehistory. But if you took a rabbit's blood or a sheep's blood and put it in a human, it didn't work. There was something went wrong. There's a rejection response. And we know that if you get a kidney or a – are we running low? Oh, I better speed up here. Anyway – What's beautiful about the stem cells is they're not rejected. Um, At least these particular type of retinal progenitor cells, um, they seem to have a quality where they do not provoke a rejection response. So we're gonna move a little quicker here. Um, Here's some cells from the green pig growing in the dish and we do the same kind of analysis to show that not only were our mouse cells looking um, like stem cells, but so are these cells from the pig. Um, we can transplant these cells into the pig eye, and we see that they make photoreceptors, and these are different photoreceptor proteins, uh, rhodopsin and recoverin, um, and they're developing these photoreceptor rosettes. Um, here's one of these red cats developed in Korea. We can generate the same kind of cells, but this time they're red. Um, and transplanting them to the retina of a blind cat, we can see that they integrate uh, into the retina. And here they're making a supporting cell, a Mueller cell, um, that uh, shows you how well these can integrate because this cell's ex- extending across the entirety of the host retina. And we can also develop cells like this from human tissue and have done that. Um, And in Mike Young's lab, they transplanted some of these cells into blind mice with immune suppression, and they were able to get uh, photoreceptor-like cells developing from these human cells. And there are groups in China transplanting cells like this, and the point I want to make is that it would appear that these, again, are not rejected by the body, which is good news. Um, So we're trying to target retinal degenerations. Uh, both retinitis pigmentosa and eventually age-related macular degeneration, which is just a little more complicated. Uh, We think it could apply to other retinal diseases as well. Uh, And I just want to acknowledge many people involved in the data I showed. And thank you for your support.